good morning and welcome to First Church. So glad you guys are here. And we are one church that meets in more than one location. So every single Sunday, we have family meeting at our Stone Canyon campus. But today especially, I know we have several families watching from home. And so if you would, put your hands together. Let's welcome in our online viewers and our Stone Canyon family as well. And we just want to take a brief moment to acknowledge the situation that our country, our community is in right now. We know COVID-19 is on everybody's mind. It's on our hearts. And so I just want to take a moment to pray for our nation, to pray for our community. For that matter, pray for the entire globe. Because I know there's a lot of fear out there right now. And this is something that we are taking seriously. Here at First Church, you've probably noticed that if you're on one of our campuses, that we've taken extra precautions to make sure that our campuses are as clean and sanitary as they possibly can be. But even with with all the preparation that we're doing and every, all the extra precautions we're taking, it still is a scary time. And so I just want to pray for our nation because we know as followers of Jesus that no matter what happens, Jesus is on the throne, that he is in charge, he is in control, and we place our trust and hope in him. And no matter what happens to us in this life, we have hope. So I just want to lift up our country, lift up our community to him, and let's just place our trust in him. So if you would, bow with me in prayer. Father, we pause here in this moment to lift up the entire globe, to lift up our country especially and our community here because we know that this virus is affecting all of us. But we know there's coming a day when you are going to make all things new and there will be no more sickness. There will be no more pain. There will be no more suffering, no more heartache. Father, there's coming a day where there will be no more fear. Because perfect fear, I mean perfect love casts out all fear. And so Father, I just pray that in this moment where so many people have anxiety and they're scared, that you could bring them comfort, knowing that no matter what happens to us in this life, this, this world cannot take away our hope, the hope that is found in Jesus Christ. And Father, we also pray for healing, healing across the globe because of this virus, because we know you are more powerful than it, you are greater than it, you are bigger than it, and you are in control. So I pray for healing for those who have been affected by this virus, and I also pray for our protection as well. But most importantly, no matter what we face, I pray that you give us hope, I pray you give us encouragement and strength and guidance to do what is best, for we place our trust fully and completely in you, the God of the universe. In the name of Jesus, I pray, amen. Well, we thought about changing what we had planned for this Sunday. This past week, our staff lead team met together, and it seemed like day by day, the situation was changing. So we thought about ditching our plans for this Sunday and doing something totally different. But after we talked about it and we prayed about it, the staff lead team here thought, no, what people need more than anything right now is Jesus, and they need consistency from the church. So we plan on starting a new series today calling Jesus Changes Everything, talking about the importance of what Jesus came to do, and we're we're just going to stick to that. We're going to do that this morning, and hopefully this message and the start of this series will bring you guys some hope, some encouragement, it will challenge you as well. And so to get us started, I'm going to put a couple letters up here on the screen. You've probably seen these letters before, OK. And I just want to ask, when you first see these letters, what pops into your mind? Now I have to admit, since I've been here at First Church the past couple years, what immediately pops into my mind is our great state. I think of Oklahoma immediately, and in fact what comes to mind is our state song. You guys know how it goes, right? Sing along if you want to. 
All right, if you notice, I didn't sing because I can't. But good job. Uh, I appreciate you guys who did, who chimed in there. Yeah, I think of Oklahoma. But you know, okay can also have some other meanings, right? When somebody says they're okay, it can also be a term of agreement. So like when my wife says, hey, Chad, you need to pick up your clothes that you just threw on the bedroom floor, I'll say, okay, and I'll go do it, you know. Or maybe you can say it in a more exciting way, like if somebody says, hey, you want to hang out, you want to go do something, okay, yeah, sure, okay. But okay also has some other meanings, right? Okay can also mean I'm good, I'm fine, I'm okay. I mean, honestly, how many times a week have you said, in a typical week, do you say, I'm okay, when someone says, how you doing, how you been? I'm okay. But my question is, when we say we're okay, are we really? Because I've discovered that whether or not somebody's okay, a lot of times depends on how they say it, because there are different ways to say okay. And so I want to do a little experiment here with you guys, and I'm going to divide up the room. And everybody on my right, I want you guys to say the letter O when I point to O on the screen. And everybody on my left, I want you guys to say the letter K when I point to it. And you guys can do this at home, or if you're watching from somewhere else, just divide up your living room if you want to. And I, if you're on my right, say the letter O with me. If you're on my left, say the letter K. And I want you to say it real loud so everybody around you can hear it. So let's practice real fast, okay? Here we go. Now that was all right. The K's were a little bit stronger than the O's, at least here at North Carolina. Let's try it again and do it real loud, okay? Much better. All right, I appreciate that. Well, let's change it up here just a little bit. And let's say the, let's hold the O out a little bit longer. So I'm gonna point to it a little bit longer and then we'll say the K real fast. So, okay, all right, let's see if we can do it. Here we go. Good, all right, excellent, excellent. Okay, let's switch it, and let's say the O real fast and hold the K out. So, okay, all right, can we do that? Here we go. Good job. Okay, can we do it in a whisper? So say it loud, everybody can still hear you, but let's do it in a whisper, do it softer, okay? Here we go. All right, isn't that sweet? Wasn't that just so precious and nice? Cute. Good job, guys. Okay, one more. Uh, now, Buckwheat off of Little Rascals, he didn't say okay. What did he say? Okay. So you guys on the K side, you guys say Tay instead of K. And let's see if we can do this. Okay. Here we go. That's awesome. We can just pray and go home after that. Okay, put your hands together. Thank you so much for helping me out. I appreciate that a whole lot. According to one researcher, Alan Metcalf, okay was the most spoken phrase uh, either typed or said in the past 10 years in the United States. Now, I don't know if that's true or not, but I think we all could acknowledge we say okay a lot. We claim we're okay a lot. But like I asked earlier, is that really always the case? Because we, we're experts at image management. In our culture today, we love to put up a good front. We love to project the right image. We love to project a false image at times. We are experts at image management. In fact, sometimes we're obsessed with it. 
We want to keep up appearances. And in our culture today, it's so easy to do just that. I mean, there are apps right now you can have on your phone where you can pay for people to like or follow your social media account. You can pay for people to make comments on your social media accounts just so you can look more popular than you actually are. And you've probably seen somebody take a selfie before that they're going to post online, and they will take 15 different pictures just to get the right one of themselves. You know, they'll take it from different angles and change the lighting and do whatever. And by the time they finally pick a picture they like and they post it, you guys looking at it are like, that doesn't look anything like that person because they've tried to get it just in the right angle and light and they've distorted themselves so much, but they like the image that they're putting out there. And we all know that on our phones there are apps with filters so we can alter our appearance in pictures to make ourselves look better than we actually do. I mean, there are filters where you can take a your wrinkles or you can whiten your teeth or make yourself look tanner you can make yourself look skinnier or whatever else or all these apps out there where you can filter your image and try to make it look better in fact I saw this meme on social media just the other day it says I think I speak for everyone stop doing this to your pics and this is of course Prince uh, Philip if you follow the royal family but everybody can tell when you do that to your pics we all know that's not what you really look like those of us who know you we know you're not fooling anybody and yet, people continue to do it. Why? Because we like to project a false image at times. We're experts. We're obsessed with image management. And in our culture, it's never been easier to fake okay. And that's true not just about our culture. It's also true a lot of times in the church as well. Because I'm afraid in the church, we've created an environment where people are very comfortable being professional pretenders. I mean, we know what it takes to look religious. We know the right religious words to say. We know what religious clothes are expected. We know what music to listen to. We know what religious mask we need to wear in order to play a certain part. But deep down, those of us who wear religious masks or have worn them in the past, deep down we know that who we're pretending to be is not who we really are. That we're not okay. And yet, sometimes it's really difficult to take off the mask that we wear. And I think that was a case for a man who approached Jesus and asked him a question in Matthew chapter 19. This guy walks up to Jesus one day and asks him a very important question. And his story, this encounter with Jesus, it's found in three different gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But here's the thing. All three of those gospel writers, they don't tell us this man's name. We've referred to him throughout church history by this title, the rich young ruler. But the Bible doesn't give him that title either. This description is actually a hodgepodge of the different detail that we receive about this guy in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. See, Matthew tells us that this guy was young. Mark tells us that he was enthusiastic and energetic. Luke tells us that he was some type of ruler. And all three of those guys tell us that this guy had a whole lot of money. He was very, very wealthy. But we really don't find out any of those details until later. When Matthew, the first gospel writer, introduces us to this guy, you know how he introduces him? Listen to this. Someone, someone came to Jesus with this question. Doesn't give us any detail about him besides the fact he was just someone. 
The New International Version says a man came to Jesus with a question. He's just a man, just a guy, just another dude. He's just one of us. Now, I get it. The Bible tells us he was a ruler. So this man had a lot of authority and influence and power. The Bible tells us he was wealthy, so he was pretty successful. He was young, so he had energy and enthusiasm. But strip away all of his achievements and accomplishments and accolades. He's just a guy. He's just a dude like you and me. He's just someone who came up to Jesus with a question. And that question that he asked Jesus is a question that probably many of us have asked or thought before, and it's this. Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Now, before we go any further, I want to talk about those two words or their eternal life. Because in the church today, when we think of eternal life, what comes to mind is heaven, the place that we go when we die. But that's not exactly what a first century Jew would have had in mind. See, yes, those two words would have had the connotation of life after death. Don't misunderstand me. But it was more than that. Because the Greek word used here for eternal is actually a word that means never-ending. What this guy is asking is, teacher, Jesus, what must I do to live a life that never ends? What must I do to start living a life now that is going to carry me throughout eternity? What do I need to start doing now to live a purposeful, meaningful life in the eyes of God that has significance and impact beyond just what I see around me? What do I need to do to start living a life, start living a life now that never ends? And I think that's a pretty important question. I think probably all of us have asked that question before. We all want to live a life that matters, a life that goes beyond just what we see around us right now, a life that extends beyond the present into eternity. That's the type of life that all of us want to live. So it's a pretty good question. But here's the problem. This guy wants to know how to live that kind of life on his own terms. Look again at his words here. It says, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? In other words, I'm keeping a checklist, and I want to make sure that I check off all the right boxes. I want to make sure that I do everything I need to do to inherit eternal life, to live this type of life that God wants me to live. So, Jesus, what is it I need to check off? What is it that I need to do? How can I achieve? How can I earn this meaningful life in God's eyes, this life that is complete and whole, this life that will last throughout all eternity? How do I get that type of life? What good deed do I need to do? If we want to translate that into our modern society, our modern church culture today, we would probably say, what is it, Jesus? Do I need to go to church more? Do I need to pray more? Do I need to read my Bible more? Do I need to help old ladies cross the street more? Do I need to give more to the offering? The answer is yes. No, I'm just kidding. But do I need to give more to the offering? If you're watching online, don't forget about it. It's okay. Anyway, moving on. But do I need to give more food to the hungry? Do I need to help out the poor more? What is it, Jesus? What good deed do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus is going to let this guy know it's not about your goodness, but it's about God's goodness. 
that's how you live the type of life you need to live, by having a relationship with the one who is good. But before he does, Jesus decides to play along just a little bit. Jesus decides to do a subtle redirect, and he says in verse 17, Why ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. He says, okay, you're asking me about what is good. Why? What's the point in asking me that? You know. You've been raised up knowing God. You know there's only one who is truly good. If you want to inherit eternal life, it's about having a relationship with him. It's not about your own personal good works. But this guy's not getting it yet. This guy doesn't understand. He's confused. And probably Jesus sees the confusion on his face. And Jesus notices the change in body language. And so Jesus says, okay, I'll go back and play your game a little bit more. I'll go back and play along a little bit more. So look what Jesus says next. He says, but to answer your question, in other words, I get it. I didn't directly answer the question you asked. But to answer your question, if you want to receive eternal life, keep the commandments. In other words, Jesus says, listen, you know what you need to do. God's already given you his standard for goodness. He's given you his commandments. He's given you his law. You already know what you need to do. Just keep it. Just do it. That's how you meet God's standard of goodness. And I'm sure at this moment, this rich young ruler is probably thinking, Jesus, that's impossible. Because nobody can perfectly keep God's law. Nobody can perfectly be good according to that definition Jesus you're asking me to do something that is impossible and so I think that's why the guy asks the very next question that he asks which ones there's no way anybody can keep all of God's law so Jesus which one specifically let me know which ones I need to keep which parts of God's law do I need to keep so that I can inherit eternal life now I love this guy because this guy is a definite achiever and I can relate to that. I'm a three on the Enneagram scale, which is the achiever. I'm an achiever. I get that. This guy wants to know the answers for the test, right? He wants to know what he needs to do in order to get eternal life. And I get that. So he's either an overachiever or he's just an irritant. You ever been around somebody who's an irritant and just asks way too many questions and they annoy everyone around them, but they don't even realize that they're doing it because they're an irritant? You ever been around somebody like that? This is normally my favorite time of year. And I'll tell you why it's my favorite time of year, because of this, because of March Madness. I am a basketball fan, as you guys know, and when March Madness kicks off, the NCAA tournament kicks off, I am glued to my TV. I watch every game that I possibly can, and I'm not going to get to do that this year. And <laughs> I'm really disappointed about it, honestly. It's March Sadness, not March Madness. Now, I know that I get it that the coronavirus is causing a lot more problems than just canceling basketball, but I'm bummed about this. I really am. It'll be okay. I'll live. I'll survive, I think. But... I'm, I'm really, it, it is March sadness, and I am sad, but I've got some great memories in the past about March, watching basketball. For one thing, my daughter was born in March, and I kid you not, after my wife gave birth to my daughter, we went back to the post-op room and, uh, you know, the post-surgery room, and we turned on basketball, watched basketball. That's what we did. You know, that's a great memory. First thing we did after our daughter was born, we watched basketball. So that's my life. But when I was in high school, I remember it was the first day of March Madness, that Thursday when all the games kick off, and Everybody was excited to watch it, but we had to be in school. And so I had one class uh, where we had a teacher who was a coach, and I knew he would want to watch it as well. So we come to class, and this teacher starts off the class, and he says, okay, listen, I know a lot of you guys want to watch the game.
game. So this is what we're going to do. I'm going to fly through the lecture today, and then I'll give you guys time to do homework afterwards, and I'll turn the TV on in the background, and those of you who want to watch basketball can watch basketball. So we were just like, awesome, you know, that's great. And so he flew through the lecture. He covered all the essential material, and he probably got done with like in 10 minutes. And this was one of those extended periods. It was like two hours, so we had a ton of time to watch basketball. All the guys, especially in the room, we were excited. And then after he finished the lecture, he looked at the class. He said, okay, I'm done. Everybody good? Everybody understand? And just then a hand went up in the front of the room, and this guy asked a question. And I'm just going to be honest with you. It was a stupid question. It was a question that only mattered to him. No one else in the room cared about whatsoever. But he asked his question, and we're just all kind of like, you know, grinding our teeth. Like, what in the world? But we tolerate the one question. Teacher answers it, and then the teacher says again, everybody good? Everybody Okay. And the hand goes back up again from the same dude sitting right up front. I kid you not, this guy probably asked 10 questions in a row. We were ready to throw our books at him. I mean, we were ready to take him out right then. It was ridiculous. He just kept one question after another. And we're all moaning and groaning and we're upset with this guy. And he had no idea that the rest of the class was furious at him because he's an irritant. An irritant, they don't know when they're being irritated. They really don't. But we tolerated and eventually we got to watch basketball. We wasted like another 30 minutes with his questions. And I don't know of this guy in our passage. I don't know if he's just being irritating and he doesn't know it. Or if he's just an overachiever. I don't know. But I don't know one thing. Jesus doesn't get upset with this guy. Jesus doesn't get frustrated. Doesn't get mad. He doesn't scold him or anything like that. Instead, Jesus answers the man's questions. Read on here. You want to know what commands you need to keep, you need to follow? Here you go. You must not murder, you must not commit adultery, you must not steal, you must not testify falsely, honor your father and mother, love your neighbor as yourself. And I bet as Jesus runs through these commands, I bet this guy who asked the question, he's probably celebrating a little bit. He's thinking, okay, I can do that. Now I know, I got it, Jesus, that's awesome. I can do all that stuff. Yes, and that's exactly what he says. Look at what he says next. If you read on the passage, he says, I've obeyed all these commandments. The young man replied, I got this. I can do this. This is awesome, Jesus. This is exactly what I wanted to hear. I'm sure at this point, he's probably given the Tiger Woods fist pump. You know, like, yes, God and I, we are okay. We are good. This is awesome. I can handle all this. I mean, look at this list here. Do not murder. Okay, murder's bad. Got that. I can handle that. I've always thought murder's bad. Never thought it was a good thing. Never killed anybody. I've thought about it, but I haven't done it yet, so that's cool. Do not murder. I can handle that. This is great. Do not commit adultery. Okay, that's bad too. I know adultery's bad. I've never done that. Maybe I've lusted after a woman. I haven't committed adultery on my wife, and I know a guy who cheated on his wife, and it tore up his entire family. Bad situation. I would never do that. You're right, Jesus. Do not commit adultery. Got that covered. Uh, Do not steal. Uh, I don't make it a habit of stealing. I mean, maybe when I was in junior high, I stole a piece of bubble gum or something, or, you know, maybe I took a pin from work one day, but I can bring a replacement pin back. It's okay. You know, I've never stolen anything I can't replace or whatever. I can handle that. That's good. I'm cool with that, Jesus. Uh, Do not testify falsely. 
don't exactly know what that means, but I think you mean don't lie. I don't make a habit of lying. I mean, I really don't. I, I might tell a little white lie here and there, but everybody does that. I mean, my wife asked me if she looks fat. What do you expect me to say? I mean, come on. Uh, maybe a little white lie here and there, but I've never really told a big lie. I've never testified falsely in court or anything. You know, I've never committed perjury or anything. So, okay, I can do that too. Cool, Jesus. Honor your father and mother. Well, that one's a... Out of, that one's kind of out of left field because I don't live with my parents anymore and I'm an adult on my own, but yeah, I respect my parents and I haven't disobeyed them for years. I can handle that one too, Jesus. Love your neighbor as yourself. That one's a little bit more difficult, but I can do that. I mean, my neighbors, they're tough to love. I mean, they play their music loud on Friday nights and I can hear it. Not only that, they park their 20 cars on the street and it's really annoying, but okay. Love your neighbor as yourself. I can do that one too. All right, Jesus. Got it. I can obey all these commandments. God and I, we're okay. But right before this young man moves on, he wants to make sure he and Jesus are on the same page. He wants to make sure that he's clear about what he's asking. And he quickly finds out that he and Jesus are not on the same page. So this man asks one more question and he asks, what else must I do? In other words, have I checked all the boxes, Jesus? Is there anything else? You gave me these lists of commands. I can handle all those. Is there anything else I need to do? Now, I just want to let you know something. This guy isn't being a jerk here. He's not a bad guy. In fact, when Mark tells us about his story, Mark says that when Jesus saw this man, looked at this man, he felt genuine love for him. Jesus loves this guy. He's not a bad guy at all. He just has the wrong approach when it comes to God. And he has the wrong idea of what life is all about. And so the guy asks, anything else? And listen to how Jesus responds. Jesus told him, if you want to be perfect, in other words, if you want to live a complete life, a full life like you're asking about, go and sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. But when the young man heard this, he went away sad, for he had many possessions. Now, this guy walks away from Jesus sad. I want you to notice, he doesn't walk away mad. He doesn't walk away irritated. He's not frustrated. He doesn't get upset at Jesus or anything like that. That word sad means for your face to be downcast, meaning he dropped his head and he walked away disappointed. This guy really did want to follow Jesus, but yet he walks away from Jesus. Why? The Bible says because he had a lot of wealth. So is what this passage, is this passage telling us that if you have wealth, you need to get rid of it? No. See, the, the man's problem wasn't that he possessed a lot of wealth. The man's problem was that his wealth possessed him. See, what Jesus wants is all or nothing. He wants all of us. And if there's anything in your life that you are unwilling to turn over to him, then that thing, whatever it is, it's become your God, your little G God. It's what motivates you. It's what controls you. It's what drives you in life. 
This man walks away sad because his wealth, his possessions, those things were more important to him than God. This man's problem wasn't that he possessed wealth. It was that his wealth possessed him. And so let me ask you, what's got you? What's got its hold on you? What's enslaving you right now? What's keeping you from fully following Jesus, from fully living the life that Jesus is calling you to live? Because Jesus is letting us know in this passage, following him, it's an all-encompassing thing. Let me put it this way. When we really follow Jesus, he changes everything, not just some things. When we really follow Jesus, he changes everything. He never settles for just changing some things. So what is it for you? What is it that you're holding back? What is it that you're keeping from Jesus? What is it that you're putting above him right now? Because if there's anything at all, that thing is going to keep you from living the life God created you to live. Jesus either changes everything or nothing. He never settles for just some things. And I wonder, is that statement true for your life today? Because let me illustrate how a lot of us live. A lot of us live kind of like this dresser I have over here beside me. Let's say that this dresser represents your life. In life, what we like to do is compartmentalize things. We like, to, we like to compartmentalize the different areas of our lives. And so we have a drawer in life that represents our money, our possessions, our stuff. So I've got some fake cash here. I asked my assistant to fill that bottom drawer with cash, and she gave me Monopoly money, so I don't think that counts, but that's okay. Also use it. Yeah, you can come up and get it afterwards if you want to. It's yours after the sermon. These kids want it. Fine. They can have it. Um, but anyway, we have a drawer that represents our money, our bank accounts, our retirement plans, our investments, our stocks, our possessions, our stuff. We have a drawer that represents our money. And then we have another drawer in life that represents our place of work. So I've got some work boots here. Now, these boots don't belong to me. I don't own boots. I borrowed them from somebody else. But still, they represent the work that we do, our careers. And maybe you don't work right now. Maybe you're in school. And so I've got a notepad here with a pencil. So maybe this represents your school life. But this is your professional life. This is your academic life. We have a drawer that represents our place of work or maybe the school we attend and the studies that we're a part of. Most of us have a drawer that represents that. But then we also have a drawer, if I can get the boots back in there, we have a drawer that represents our free time, our recreation, entertainment, you might say. So maybe it's sports, you know. I borrowed these toys from my kids. So maybe it's sports, maybe it's a hobby like fishing. That's a cool fishing pole, isn't it? That's awesome. I'm not going to catch very much with that, but still, that belongs to my kids as well. Maybe it's reading a good book. Some of you guys like to read, so you pull out a good book. Maybe it's spending time on this thing. This is where a lot of us spend our downtime, isn't it? This is how we keep ourselves entertained. We're addicted to our screens, and so we do a lot of stuff on these. Maybe it's your iPad, maybe it's your computer, whatever. Maybe you like to watch movies or TV. Then we have another drawer. This drawer is what I'm going to say, 
I'm gonna say it's our relationship drawer. <laughs> Again, I borrowed toys from my kids, so these belong to Addie. But this could represent your marriage. Also, we've got some little kids here that go along with them. So, you know, your kids, your family. If you're dating somebody, it might represent your love life, could represent your friendships or whatever. This is our, it's our relationship drawer. So we've got all these drawers, and we like to compartmentalize our lives. But here's the thing. For most of us, we have one more drawer. And I'm not sure if it should even be a drawer. But we have it. And it's our spiritual drawer. You might call it your religious drawer. You might even refer to it as your Jesus drawer. And so what we like to do is pull Jesus out when we need him. You know, it's Sunday morning, time for church, so we pull Jesus out. Or maybe we need him to answer a prayer, so we pull him out. We're going through a hard time. Maybe we're dealing with a funeral right now or sickness, whatever. We pull him out. Maybe it's a time of celebration, like a wedding, and so we mention him. We pull him out. We pull Jesus out when we need him. But here's the thing. When you have a Jesus drawer, just as easily as you pull him out, you can put him back up. And sometimes... We don't want Jesus out when we have our money drawer open. Because our money, it's our money. We've worked hard for it. We've earned it. We don't want anybody telling us how to spend it, use it, especially Jesus. We especially like to keep this drawer shut when we go to work, right? Because, I mean, sometimes at work we get to do things that Jesus might not be proud of. So when we open up our work drawer, we definitely want to keep our Jesus drawer shut. What about when it comes to our hobbies and our activities? How many people do you know, they're one person on the ball field, but they're another person when they come to church? I've been guilty of this. What about when it comes to these? Times when you're alone, you pull out your screen, and what pops up on that screen is stuff that you know Jesus wouldn't be happy about. So you make sure this drawer stays shut when you're alone with your phone. What about when it comes to your relationships? When you go on a date, you really, want, you really don't want Jesus in the car with you or the truck with you, do you? Maybe when it comes to spending time with your family, and you know you're not invested in your spouse or your kids like you should be, sometimes it's just better to keep Jesus shut up. Now, we'll pull him back out when we need something. It's Sunday. It's church time. We'll pull him out at the right times. But we'll put him back up when we want to open one of these other drawers. And guys, that's the rich young ruler. This Rich young ruler, if you asked him if he loved God, he would say, yes, God was his top drawer. But every time you talked about money, every time you opened that drawer, this drawer stayed shut because he didn't want the two to interact. What is it for you? What drawer is it that when you open it, maybe it's one I haven't even mentioned up here, you make sure that whenever it's open, your Jesus drawer is shut. That's how a lot of us live, and Jesus is teaching us in this passage 
that following him, it's an all or nothing kind of thing. Because if there's any drawer, any area of your life that you are hiding from him, keeping from him, you're not really following him. Because when we follow Jesus, he changes everything or he changes nothing. He never settles for just changing some things. That's why Jesus teaches in Mark chapter 12. Jesus says in Mark chapter 12, love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind and with all of your strength. In other words, love God with your entire being. Love God with everything you have, everything you got. Love God with your entire being. Following Jesus isn't something you do. It's who you are. And Jesus refuses to be a drawer in the dresser of your life. No, instead, what Jesus wants is Jesus wants to be the dresser that all of your drawers fit into. This is what he wants. This is what it means to follow him. Because following Jesus isn't something you do. It's who you are. The rich man in our passage, he didn't get that. He thought that by simply pulling Jesus out on occasion and doing good works for him, that that would be enough. But what this man didn't get is that good works are all about obligation. Jesus is all about transformation. He wants to transform your entire life every aspect of your life. He wants to change your entire life. He can bring healing. He can bring restoration to every part of your life. He can make you new from the inside out. But here's the thing. Jesus can't change. Jesus can't heal. Jesus can't restore. Jesus can't hide. Jesus can't make new what you hide. He can't make new. He can't heal. He can't restore what you keep from him. Because if there is one toxic area in your life, it will poison the rest of your life. One toxic area of your life will poison the rest of your life and keep you from living the life God created you to live. Let me illustrate it like this. When I was in Bible college, I had a buddy who would go home on the weekends occasionally to visit his parents. And when he would, he would always take his dirty laundry with him. Because at the dorms, we had to pay to use the laundromat. So instead of paying to use the laundromat, he would save up all of his dirty clothes. And then he would take them home and let his parents wash them for him. And it was free that way. And he did this one weekend. And when he came back, I got in his car like the next day or two. And it was hot outside. You know, temperature was warm. And his car stunk. Like it, it stunk to high heaven. It was just nasty and I thought what is that smell something die in here well come to find out we didn't know this for like a week or so later a couple weeks later but a dirty sock and it must have been a really dirty sweaty nasty sock had fallen out of his dirty laundry and got stuck in between some seats he didn't know it was there and literally he looked all over the car to try to see if there was something in like food he left in there or something couldn't find it we didn't know what the smell was and this went on for a little bit and we kept saying you need to get your car detailed they need to clean it through and through to make sure that you get out whatever it is that's causing this stench and he wouldn't do it he says too expensive I'm not going to pay to have my car completely detailed he wouldn't do it until the day that he 
asked a girl out on campus, and she said yes, and he refused to let her drive in his stinky car, or ride in his stinky car, and so he paid to have his car detailed. They found the dirty sock, and the smell was gone. And I remember we gave him a hard time. I mean, we really gave him a hard time, like, oh, so now you pay for it. But we all knew exactly why he did, because that girl, to him, was worth more than the cost of the detail. Let me ask, when it comes to your relationship with Jesus, what you're holding on to, what you're keeping from him, what's enslaving you right now, is that worth more to you than what Jesus is offering you? Is that worth more to you than him? Because if you do really love him, he's worth whatever the cost. And I think a lot of times Jesus is right in front of us offering us the life that we've always wanted to live, a life with meaning and purpose, a life that is satisfied and content, a life that lasts beyond this age to the next. He's offering us this life that our soul is longing for and yet we walk away from him because we want to hang on to stuff that ultimately won't matter at all. As a preacher, I get to do funerals every now and then. I did a funeral last week. I'm going to do a funeral again this week. And when you meet with families and the subject, is death is on, the subject of death is on your minds, when you're confronted with death, the stuff that mattered before just doesn't matter in that moment anymore. And one day we're all going to stand before God. And do we really want to look at him and say, my money, my screen time, my hobbies, whatever. That stuff was more important to me than you. If there's any area of your life right now that you are refusing to give to him, it's going to continue to keep you from living the life that he is calling you to live. Because when it comes to following Jesus, he either changes everything or nothing. He never settles for just changing some things. See, I had to get to the point in my life when I realized it's okay not to be okay. Because only when you realize that you're not okay can Jesus come in and fully change you. I'm not okay and I need him, and that's why I've given him all of my life. I wonder today, are you willing to do the same? Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you so much for this time that we've had to meet together as your church and to open up your word and be challenged by it. Father, you want to change our lives. You want to transform our lives. You want to give us the life that we were designed and created to live, a life with true purpose and meaning, a life that lasts beyond this present age. Father, may nothing keep us from living that life. If there's anything right now that is holding any one of us back, Father, may we make the conscious decision to give it over to you. We don't want you to be a drawer in the dresser of our lives. Father, we want you to be the dresser that contains all of our drawers. We love you so much. We thank you for coming to the earth and saving us so that we can live the life you created us to live. In the name of Jesus, I pray, amen.